Hello and welcome to EMS Research with Professor Bram, where we talk about the research-related issues that matter to those who work in emergency medical services. Today, we'll be talking about research reviewed by the International Pre-Hospital Medicine Institute. Welcome to the EMS Research Vlog and Podcast from the studio here in Houston, Texas. I'm your host, Bram Duffy. I'm a full-time paramedic on the street, like many of you. I also have an appointment as a research fellow with the Institute for Social Innovation at Fielding Graduate University, and I'm an assistant professor of communication at Kennesaw State University. I actually have a research study open now for first responders, so if you don't mind being interviewed by me, then go to my website and check it out, www.professorbram.com. It's professorbram.com. You just click on the current research tab to apply. The other thing to share before we get started, I have written two different books on communication. And the most recent book was just released called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for Life-Saving and Therapeutic Outcomes. You can find a link to the book below. Also, for sure, hang out to the end and I'll tell you more about it. Today, our show, I am excited that we have Will Chaplow here with us from the International Pre-Hospital Medicine Institute. He's a founding partner at the Institute and has been a paramedic for 45 years, a trauma nurse specialist for 32 years. And for the last eight years, he served as the Director of Performance Improvement at the American College of Surgeons after spending six years managing trauma training programs for the Committee on Trauma and then retired in 2020, so just like three years ago. He also spent 20 years with the Chicago Heights Fire Department the last six years as chief, and then spent 15 years as an educator in the Good Samaritan Hospital system in Downers Grove, Illinois. He also was at the St. James Hospital in Prairie State College in Chicago Heights. He served as the chair of the PHTLS committee of the National Association of EMT for nearly 20 years. And so I used to be a PHTLS instructor. I guess I could thank him for that. He also served on the NAMT Board of Directors and uh, the National Association of EMS Educators and the Society of Trauma Nurses. So he chaired a task force for the National Association of EMS Physicians and has been a frequent contributor in uh, GEMS, the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. That's how I uh, found him. And he's also been published in the Journal of Trauma and Critical Care, and EMS World Magazine. So Will has written and edited different things throughout, including texts in four languages and taught pre-hospital care and, and been in over 60 countries. So there's so much to tell about you. And I just want to see, is there any way I missed anything, Will? No, I've, I've been uh, lucky enough to... Uh get exposed to a lot of different opportunities in emergency medicine or pre-hospital medicine since it began. Um, starting in the 70s, things were just kind of kicking off. Um, so it didn't take long to become one of the old guys because it was- That's how I feel, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, you'd be pretty well covered. It, it, uh, I spend all my time now with the Institute um, and these are uh, my five partners of the writing. We've been writing together for decades and we decided that we wanted to do something different and uh, so we do reviews we write textbooks and courses um, you know just trying to get things in a way that are relevant um, easy to get at and affordable 
uh, as we know, it's it's uh, it's pretty expensive to be an EMS responder when it comes to your training and stuff. And we wanted to try to make it easier for people to, you know, buy the books that they want, read the things that they want, and to take the courses they would like to. The books that you write and the classes that you offer, I'm assuming that these are really similar to some of the other programs that are out there. Right. So like, for oh, example, yeah. is this like your version of PHTLS or tell me more about your institute? Well, we, we base, basically try to, um, we'll do some of the work that we've always been doing. You know, this is a, the kind of writing that we've been doing right now. We've, we've been together for five years. And, uh, the first thing we did was the literature reviews. Um, we do, we, we review at least four scholarly uh, papers a month mm -hmm. and then, um, We've been doing that now, for, as I said, for five years. And one of the things we published is um, like a compendium of all the reviews for each of the five years we've been writing them so that if you wanted, if people wanted them for a reference, and again, the mission is to make it so it's cheap. So all of our stuff is like four or five bucks, six bucks, um, just to make it so it pays for itself and then people can, can get their hands on it. As far as the books and courses, um, a lot of what we're writing is... Uh, driven by the people that we work with. Um, one of our things is the, um, the course that we put together for um, TCCC for law enforcement and first responders is a course that we have. And one of our instructors said, you know, the civil disturbances are uh, kind of a new phenomenon different things happen. How do we take care of those situations? So we developed that book and course in as a request from one of our faculty. Um, some of our courses will be similar to other folks. Uh, we, cover material in the same blocks of information that EMS education has been in. Um, but again, our focus is to make it uh, relatable, affordable, and up to date because we're published, we're self-published. If something changes, we could have the book next week. The book that you purchase next week would be totally updated if we, if we had to update it because there's been a change in practice or additional information. So we manage, um, so like we call it dynamic publishing. You know, we're able to change our content as needed going forward. So some of our stuff is already going into second editions. And in the five years, we've got 13 different books uh, published in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. A three years worth of research or how much comes out in a book like that? There's five editions and each one covers a year. Awesome. So uh, roughly the 40 to 50 um, reviews in each of the five books. Altogether, there's over 200 of them. I didn't know about that. And this is what I do. I read re EMS research. So thank you for bringing that to me. I'll let you know I'll be ordering that. Tell me what <laughs> else Tell me what else I should know about. Because I'm assuming that you have a book that's a comprehensive trauma book. Isn't that one of your books? We just released that one um, last week. And uh, it's, it's now Amazon has listed it as uh, much like your books. It was listed as... Uh, number one new release on the EMS and general medicine sites for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's being well received. It's comprehensive. It's like nearly 500 pages, a couple hundred brand new images and illustrations that we, we did ourselves. Uh, and we, we took the entire thing and structured it around the March protocols, whereas uh, assessment has shifted from the old ABCs to massive hemorrhage first, then airway respiration, et cetera. So, um, the whole book was kind of modeled around that. So your approach to the patient is shifts to the modern approach. Um, and we're working on um, an EMT textbook now as well. The same kind of thing is like, uh, instead of having books cost $100, we're hoping that they can continue to be around 30 or 40. Um, 
we found this to be ex uh, extremely important, particularly when we go into Latin America and Asia, where you ask somebody to spend 70 or $80 for a book, it takes them months to make that kind of money. And um, that's part of our mission has been to get these things, get the cost down, uh, price them so that providers can afford them and get into the languages where people are looking for this kind of stuff. Awesome. So you've got a major trauma book out. You already have a five years worth of reviews out and yep. then you're coming out with an EMT book soon. That sounds incredible. I'd like to contribute to that, by the way, if you, <laughs> if you need contributors, but Consider, yeah, you, you may be afraid by the end of the night that you've come way too close to the flame here. <laughs> it's come too close. I understand. So uh, tell me more about the, the other stuff, the other stuff that your Institute does before we, uh, before we move on to the articles. Well, we like, we, we like to set it up so that uh, we can be the trusted resource for our providers and educators. So we've got um, a first aid book and a bleeding control book for our people because we know a lot of providers are involved in community education. Um, we've got the uh, Casualty Care for Civil Disturbances book and course. Uh, again, dealing with those situations. My son's a police officer in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when there's civic unrest that it was kind of a new thing for people to have to deal with uh, having uh, fireworks shot at them in frozen water bottles and the types of injuries that might occur. So mm -hmm. we wrote a book and a course around that to uh, for first responders so they could have some help there. Um, we also did um, biological nuclear um, incendiary, incendiary chemical and explosive book and course, which basically covers... Uh, Weapons of mass destruction, hazardous materials. Um, the, as I said, the tactical uh, combat casualty care for law enforcement first responders book and course. We have another book. It's pre-hospital medicine principles, pearls, and pitfalls, which is uh, nearly eight hundred pages. That's, and it's that sounds like a EMT textbook. There, it's being used in a lot of places as an adjunct text, and also for uh, continuing education programs. It's a question and answer format that goes through the entire depth and breadth of uh, EMS uh, from the um, from the treatment side all the way to the educational side and into the logistics and uh, politics and uh, systems arrangement. So it's used by a lot of folks as, uh, as I said, an adjunct, adjunct text, but also for, for experienced people to look at because it covers a lot of things they don't get exposed to really often. It's a very popular, it's our most popular book at this point. And as I said, it's, to our mission, you know, to make this stuff relevant and affordable, that book at nearly 800 pages uh, only costs like uh, $25. So it's like we're, we're trying to get it to a point where uh, we're accessible. And then we can, we'll keep responding to our people. We're, we want to be some, their place of first resort and trust. Yeah. How do you feel about the, how training's going? I mean, before we get into the article, how do you feel about how training's going in the U.S. for paramedics? Because I think on one side, you know, there's a lot of talk about how we can't get enough. And then on the other side, there's talks about how we should make it easier or we should make it more difficult or we should, you know, empower more advanced providers and not worry about paramedics. And what's your take on the pulse of all this? Well, I think it's important to, uh, to listen to the literature, number one. And I think what the literature is telling us is that most of what we do is really simple and not complex. Uh, and um, there is a point at where pre-hospital has to end and in-hospital starts. And 
what we're finding from the literature is that some of the most complicated things that we do um, take time and distract. And some of the simpler things that we can do, we can do easier. For instance, instead of being around a bush, go to airway management. Uh, we know that uh, combi twos and LMAs and uh, you know, superglottic airways are easy, they're functional, and that the studies are showing us basically that patients do better when, when that's the first and primary airway and they can be intubated later if they need to be. Um, the stuff about IV solutions, you know, I, when I started, we were bombing people with two, you know, bilateral 12 gauge, yeah. <laughs> biggest needle you can find, running liters of fluid into them. And now we know, and some of the literature we discuss uh, monthly in our, uh, in our reviews is that uh, small boluses of, of fluid in the field, if you are not part of a blood protocol, is all that you, all that you need and anything more or less is probably hazardous. So bleeding control, airway management, you know, for most of our critical patients, things are very simple. Make sure the airway's open. Make sure they're breathing. Make sure they're not bleeding. You know, if they're if in a rest situation, you defibrillate them. Those are the important things. And it's a lot simpler than we make it sometimes. So that's one argument. The other argument is um, much of EMS in the United States is still provided by volunteers. And if we make EMS education inaccessible uh, to people in small communities that are just trying to take care of their friends and neighbors, uh, we're making a big mistake there too. So I think there's a wide breadth or array of specialty opportunities in pre-hospital care. And you can go from you know critical care transfers on the one end, all the way down to a well-trained first responder that can do a lot of good things in a short period of time when the patient needs us to. It's like Nicholas Sen is one of our favorite people to quote when we talk about trauma care. He always said the life of the wounded soldier because he's a famous uh, military surgeon, rests in the hands of the person that applies the first dress. And I think that's pretty much EMS in general. Uh, when people are in critical situations, it's that first person that gets to them, knowing what they know well, what they can do well, and doing that no more, no less, uh, is the best that we can do in pre-hospital care, in, in my mind. As you can see, so some of this stuff is going to be controversial. There's people pushing, you know, elements of the, all of those agenda. Um, but I think we have to, we have to think broadly. That's so, that was well, a lot of stuff. In the, no, it's the good. No, it's good. Cause it, it made me think more deep about the topic. And one of the things that's sort of in my head right now is about how we don't prioritize EMS in this country uh, in a way that would allow for governmental funding. Right. And so that's what this, uh, new documentary is out about idea just to throw this out there is if it were to happen so that uh, EMS is recognized as a service that has to be funded by the government, um, then maybe things wouldn't be so tight when it comes to the education concern, because all of a sudden we would be able to offer people in rural communities jobs and then it's the training that comes possible. with that. So some of these problems are like insurmountable until we think about how money can make a big difference. <laughs> yeah, that's entirely possible. And I think um, you're a man of science. And one of the things you're talking about here is uh, looking at what the literature teaches us. I think as long as we stay on the right side of the science, um, that we can do the things we need to do to get the recognition we need, to get the structure we need, the regulation we need, uh, and the government support. And when you talk about government support uh, in rural medicine and rural pre-hospital care, that's going to have to be supported by 
the government at some level because uh, the resources they they're going to need generally they just don't have the, the local resources to support it yeah that's a generalization lots yeah. of communities are doing well um but i talk to people every week that are saying what are we going to do we can't keep people on the job um i had a conversation with a guy just the other day he said do you think it's a problem of leadership or a problem of there aren't enough people and i said yes um, <laughs> both um, the problem is when you're having trouble with recruitment and retention, the people that are next, it's their turn in the barrel, you know, they're moving up next, might not have the skill set or the history or the experience to be the leader. So we have to work on both ends of that thing mm -hmm. in order to help them out with that situation. You got me wandering everywhere today. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, this is cool conversation because this is all stuff that, you know, there are no simple answers for a lot of these big issues. And so mm -hmm. it's good to be knowledgeable and think through and this is what critical thinking is you know like those folks who like to snap a, a quick answer on things and just call it good maybe missed out on some critical thinking steps so thanks for going through those steps with me today the other thing i want to do to together is you put out a literature review for october 2023 like you do every month from the yep. institute and there's four articles that we're not going to probably have a chance to get to all of them, but you did some summary work and then I rewrote them for, for us to talk about. And I don't know that we necessarily have a lot to talk about after each one, but I'm going to read some of these summaries so we can kind of just see what we think. The first one is a study called Manual Pressure Point Techniques for Massive Hemorrhage Control, a Prospective Human Volunteer Study. This examined the effectiveness of manual compression at pressure points that we're at the junctional hemorrhage area. So uh, research involves 38 subjects who were trained to apply the femoral pressure points with the outcome measure being that the whole blood flow would stop within two minutes of, of putting that pressure on there. And the results showed that they had a 97% success rate in manually applying that pressure when they did both the femoral and the uh, supraclavicular arteries. So the study was conducted in a controlled environment, though, with young and able-bodied combat medics. So that doesn't necessarily reach for a true demographic. But despite those limitations, the authors conclude that manual pressure on specific points can be a really efficient method for the temporary hemorrhage control. Of course, it suggests further studies and further um, education and protocols. I'm glad that these pressure points work will <laughs> i remember back when i was a lifeguard and my lifeguard training back when i was a kid and i was learning about pressure points and thinking about you know thinking about doing this and as a 25 year paramedic i can tell you that i'm not that comfortable sticking a tourniquet on just everybody you know, there are some new paramedics that are going through the Stop the Bleed program. By the way, I'm a Stop the Bleed instructor. Folks that are going through that program are ready to throw a tourniquet on everything. And I just am an old school guy that's like, okay, now, you know, let's uh, sort of like lifeguard. Like, let's reach, throw, row before we go, you know, but the go is the tourniquet. So I'd like to share with you that, gosh, well, I walked into this situation one time where I had a kid who was 15, I'm sorry, he was 16 years old. And he looked like that he had just walked into his adult body. Like, you know, he was a kid yesterday, but today he doesn't know how to move his body around that good because he's huge and he just became that big, you know? And so as a kid, he put his hand through the plate glass window of the front door of his house just because he just can't move his body around right. So 
It was super severe arterial bleed, and his mom was home. Everybody was screaming. So my partner and I got to the call, and when we walked in the door, it looked honestly worse than a horror movie because he, this kid had sprayed the whole ceiling, the whole walls, the whole everything with arterial blood, you know? And then you just got people running around screaming and, you know, making it worse. And this was my time to shine. This was my time to put a tourniquet on. And you know what? I didn't do it. <laughs> I went for the pressure point and it worked. And the in what this article is saying and, and what was true in my case was that I was in a position to be able to hold pressure and make it work, right? And we get into situations where because of transport time, because of, you know, the fact that you need two hands to do other things or whatever it be, you just can't hold pressure points like that. And I understand that that's why that, uh, you know, we push for these uh, tourniquets to get strapped on. And in this case, just so you know, I called ahead to the emergency room I was going to, and I asked them if they had a surgeon that could handle this. And I described the arterial bleed in the hand, and they said yes. And so when I got to the ER, I was surprised and, and happy that the surgeon met me in, in the ER. And then uh, I think he did a some quick repair work, but then put him on a, a helicopter, which like blew my mind. I'm like, Dude, I went through all this. We could have just flown him from the, you know, from the start. But I, I think what had happened was is that he had to do some, temp, you know, temporary repair work and then ship him off to a bigger, to a bigger sure. center to help. But yeah, that was my moment to shine, and I did not use a tourniquet. The other thing, just to mention about tourniquets, is that I think it was the fourth show I did of of the EMS Research uh, podcast. I had an expert on snake bites that that came in and. And also talked about tourniquets, and they're just very much not uh, recommended in, in those uh, cases a lot of times. And so it's just different philosophies that, you know, that, that happen. And so I guess I, I'm old school because I'm ready to stick mass trousers on somebody, but I'm not ready to stick a tourniquet. <laughs> I don't know. Tell me what your thoughts are about this. You kind of brought, touched on something. Is that when, when we make changes in practice, sometimes it's like we throw everything out. Uh, without any consideration to what we're going to do in the interim. Like when they first came out and said backboards are no good, uh, they pulled them off all the ambulances, and it's like, well, how am I going to get this guy out of a ditch? Yeah. How do I get this person down the stairway? Uh, some people, like, did what they were told and threw them away and then realized, oh, we got a problem now. And so it's like we always have to think about the vacuum left behind when we make a change in practice. And leading control isn't hasn't changed. It's it's It still is in the foremost, the, the first thing in bleeding control is direct pressure at the side of the bleed. Um, if that doesn't work, you know, then we can look at things like uh, tourniquets and, and other devices, uh, dressings, impregnated dressings. Um, what this study looked at is that direct pressure and tourniquets sometimes are not even possible because of this, the location of the injury. Mm -hmm. So these guys were looking to see particularly, you know, with these potential for junctional bleeds, which there are devices for now, they're cumbersome, not everybody has them, um, that in those situations, this might be a temporizing thing that can actually save some lives while we're trying to get them to someplace where they could be cared for. So I, I still train kids and said, your first move, you know, on most situations, it's not going to be a turn mm -hmm. unless you're under fire or there's jeopardy and you can't do your job the way you might otherwise. Um, most of the time, direct pressure is going to take care of the bleed. 90% of the time, direct pressure takes care of bleeding. Um, and that being said, I, I would hate for someone to hesitate using a tourniquet because they have doubts, uh, if it is what that patient needs. So, um, by and large tourniquets aren't hurting people, 
Um, they are saving lives. The data from uh, particularly the military have, have shown that uh, the complications are minimal and uh, they're, saving, they're saving patients that would have otherwise bled to death. But again, for domestic uh, typical situations, I would be quick to go directly to direct pressure over the wound. Uh, and then this study would say, maybe we can come back with pressure points in situations where uh, we need some help. Yeah, so when you talk about the military and uh, army medics and tourniquets, my best friend's an army medic, and you know, to hear him talk about how in some of his training, they used to put tourniquets on each other and then do races. I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys, everyone's trying to give each other a blood cut. You know, <laughs> so sometimes the stuff that gets done in training is is definite in, into overboard land, but I am happy that we look at this and happy that we do it. I have the, the other study that you put out was and also about um, tourniquets. And so this one was called Pre-Hospital Tourniquet Placement in Extremity Trauma. And it was published in the American Journal of Surgery. This is something that explored the effectiveness and appropriateness of the pre-hospital pre tourniquet use in these trauma situations. Like, do I do it? Do I not do it? Kind of like what I was talking about. So this yeah. was a retrospective study. So it looked at 221 patients who went to a level one trauma center with a pre-applied tourniquet. So, you know, they really had to do research to dig to get these records together. And the researchers found that gunshot wounds were the most common cause of injury requiring this kind of tourniquet. And then that most tourniquets were commercially produced and applied by EMS personnel. So they're using the ones that come in the kits. The study also noted that only around one third of those tourniquets were necessary. So when they got there, they maybe didn't keep those, uh, keep the tourniquets or at least highlighted that, that they weren't necessary. And so the authors were suggesting that really training needs to continue and expand in and to make sure that pre-hospital care could uh, help address these issues. And I would say that in the last five years or so, we have done some improvements in this area because, of, like I said, like the Stop the Bleed program that's being put out in communities. And I don't, Tell me what your thoughts are here. Totally agree. I think one of the things, particularly when uh, you look at things like Stop the Bleed or even CPR, you're coming up with a, a standardized protocol that can be adopted across a broad spectrum of people with a variety of experiences and education. Um, so when you do that, you have to break it down to be very simple and very direct. What we have in EMS though, is we have responders that have a broader experience, a broader education, and they can be trained to make distinctions in certain situations. And I think the study that you bring up here that we reviewed pointed out that, yeah, about a third of the time it wasn't necessary. It also points out that 25% of those situations were, um, the scene might've been unstable. You know, so that's exactly the kind of situation where you might opt for a tourniquet, uh, not just because the nature of the bleed, but because you're under fire or another hazard situation. And meanwhile, you don't want them to continue to bleed while the hazard is secure. Uh, so there's a variety of reasons, but the, the thing is that keep, people keep forgetting, some pe people who make the standards keep forgetting, is that we're training intelligent people um, that have experience. So we can we can teach them to, to make good decisions, our judgment based on knowledge, Dr. McSwain always used to say, you know, have this fund of knowledge that you can base good judgment on. We can do that, um, but to your point again about research and stuff, that means we have to share with them what we learn. 
uh, which means that as many as a third of these might not have been necessary. So what does that say about your practice and your assessments and your treatment? Yeah. Um, if you bring people in and they're still bleeding, that's an excuse. Use the tricks that are appropriate to the situation. Yeah, and this has got to be one of those things that you have to think through and plan for in your mind. I mean, it's a true emergency that requires immediate action that you just can't F around and have to try to find where this thing is in your kit. You need it immediately. And it's kind of reminds me of these. I always say that I'm, as a paramedic, I still work as a paramedic. I don't run, right? I'm not someone that runs, but I have had some very serious choking calls and so I'll just tell you that if, I, if you want to see me sprint, then it could happen maybe on a choking call. Because I know when I get there, I, I know what I need to do. And I know I'm the one that probably the only one that can, you know, do it. And so it's like all about, you know, tasks. And in this case, too, when, when someone's bleeding to death, it is a task that has to be done. And if you've never, you know, been smacked in the face with the fact that you need to perform an action immediately, then one of the best things I guess that you can do is to mentally prepare yourself by imagining these situations. I walked into a call one time where a guy was trying to kill himself and he had cut his wrist to the point uh, where he couldn't make his wrist bleed anymore. And so he started cutting away at his ankles. It was a really sad case. And his situation was that he was dying of cancer and he wanted to kill himself before his family, you know, had to see him uh, disintegrate and go down that path. And so when my partner and I walked in the door, the floor was linoleum floor. And so my partner, who was almost 300 pounds, slipped on the blood in the floor and splatted out just everywhere. From that point forward, it was like a sickening comedy scene where he is slipping around on the floor with his shoes and he and I are fumbling trying to just get to the patient in the room through the slip slide and get a tourniquet on them, much less find the light, find the tourniquet. So these are things that we talk about in EMS, like, oh, like it's not a big deal. We have to stop the bleeding. But when it really happens, maybe your hands just can't move fast enough in some cases. Yeah, doing work in the field is, is and sometimes people that are um, trying to set standards and give us advice um, don't know these environments. But, you know, having to do a full rest between a toilet and a bathtub. I mean, people don't get these kinds of experiences you know, unless they've worked an EMS before and it's uh right and they say well why would you be stuck in there and, and the answer is because they're a massive person and they're in a small space and you can't pull on one body part hard enough to drag their body out I mean it's dramatic yeah I mean I try maybe I'm sounding dramatic <laughs> but yeah because I just wanted to say that just in case someone's listening that, that hasn't been in a situation like that how could someone be in that I can tell you how they could get stuck there and it's really a, a difficult thing I'm going to skip the third and I want to hit the fourth study, the fourth study yep. that you had published uh, the, the lit review about was called Temporal Changes in the Pre-Hospital Management of Trauma Patients 2014 to 2021. And the, this study was published in the American Journal of Surgery and just recently. And it investigates the shift in pre-hospital interventions performed by EMS over a seven-year period and their impact on mortality rates. I thought this was interesting. The authors... Um, conducted a retrospective chart review, so looking at old charts, of over 3,000 adult trauma patients transported to the Level 1 Trauma Center in Austin, Texas. So I'm in Houston, so it's like a two-and-a-half-hour drop for me. They found that while some procedures like that were more advanced, uh, like thoracostomy, pelvic stabilization, tourniquet application, and using TXA administration, those kinds of things increased over time, like advanced airway procedures, other things decreased. So using spine board and just doing the regular IV starts went down. 
So it looks like that uh, providers were looking for the exciting things and forgot about the nuts and bolts of, of what we do. But it said simultaneously, both the emergency department and in-hospital mortality rates dropped. So this is interesting because although this shows that there are some valuable insights into how this EMS trauma care is evolving, we can really only be limited in what we can say about what all this means. But I think it's interesting to be able to say that, wow, providers maybe are focusing on the big stuff, right? And so when I started, it wasn't heard of to bring a paramedic level patient to the emergency room without an IV because the nurse is going to look at you like, well, didn't you do your job, you know, kind of thing. And yeah. so now some of that's changing, maybe. Yeah, I think uh, this study, among others, um, are pointing towards, um, as I said earlier, it's like, turns out the, the, the harder we look at these things, it really is that simple. It's some, the things that seem to do the most good are the simple things and, the, and not the more complicated things. And that when we stop, um, well, I think the crystalloid thing is, was a huge thing that when we were flushing out the red cells on people. Um, I think that that, um, that probably had a big result when we cut back. And that's not just in the field, in the hospital, they stopped the crystalloids also. So I think that was a big thing. I think I we think, treat them more like pediatric patients now. Like, you know, we when we studied pediatric trauma, we used to limit their fluid. But 20 cc bolus. <laughs> exactly. And now we think about those things in adults for the same reason. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm not proud to tell you that I think I've been part of you know, hurting people because I've done that because I did what I was trained, put mass trousers on people and push fluid. And I didn't know I was pushing it out of them. No, no one did. It's just, um, it's exciting that we're progressing so that things like that don't have to happen. And I think the airway stuff too, it mentions, um, crystallize. It also mentions the use of tourniquets and uh, dressings. And it also talks about the airway management stuff. And I think what we're learning through the airway studies is, the best airway to come in is one that the patient manages themselves. Oh, sure. So we don't have to force all of our skills on every patient, you know, that comes in every time and that the simpler things are better. And um, I think the study kind of points in that direction to your point. It really doesn't mark out anything that we can say, this is what did it. We shouldn't do that anymore at all, but it's, it kind of gets us into this frame of mind that maybe a simpler approach to uh, a lot of these situations is producing better outcomes. Not, not any individual thing, but it goes back to that fund of knowledge and good judgment based on that fund of knowledge and appropriate assessments to what my patient needs me to do, no more, no less, not with a pre-gone or pre-formed conclusion about what my patient would need, but what the patient speaks to me with. Mm -hmm. you know, what, what is their disability telling me they need me to help with? What stuff are they doing well enough on their own? I mean, you know that in critical care, for instance, we innovate some people uh, it's with COPD and it's very difficult to, to extubate them, you know, yeah. because of the dependencies and managing their own airway is optimal. So if we can help them to do that. So mm. all of that, I think is mixed into that soup there. We're, we need to learn a lot more, but I think it's important that it, it taught us a lesson in we're making progress here. And what is probably the most uniform thing that we're doing is that we're simplifying things down to what the patient tells us they need. Yeah. And I, I was just thinking about how sometimes I will be managing an air, uh, managing a, a patient that's a COPD patient or 
someone who is on the borderline of needing that intubation intervention. And the story sometimes changes when you get to the emergency room, right? So like I've been through the cases where I have worked really hard to prevent them from being intubated. And as soon as I get there, the, the doctor drops a tube and I'm like, oh, I wasted all this time. I could have done that part, you know, but I think what I learned from that in, in talking to other providers is that the hospital's just not willing to babysit these people and sit there with them like we are doing in the ambulance, right? So even the nurse in the emergency room that's in one of the major rooms, she has at least two rooms or more. So they can't be in there with them. And so it's actually ends up being safer for the patient to go ahead and intubate. But it's, it's definitely a case-by-case basis. I'm glad we're having those conversations because I think it's one thing that COVID did do is it helped us think about intubating or not and realizing that if somebody bites that tube, they may not make it out. Actually, I think there's a lot more we could learn. Um, during COVID, uh, parts of my team uh, were still actively working. Uh, Dr. Lance Stuckey is a trauma surgeon and a lot of trauma surgeons got tossed because they run the ICUs mm -hmm. and they got tossed into this trying to figure out what to do with these patients that had insulin levels through the roof and uh, couldn't figure out what was happening to them metabolically and, and just trying to, to run chemistry on these folks. And to your point about managing the airways, it's like what they learned in the ICU units about um, managing complex patients, I think, um, would be of use to us in uh, learning from that history because it was a terrible, terrible time. Uh, for the ICU staffs and the doctors that were trying to figure it all out. Yeah, and I, I was right there with them. It was a nightmare. And we're doing a lot of humidified high flow right now is what I notice. And even uh, some critical care EMS services are having the high flow contraptions, you know, with them also. So there, are, those are some advancements that are helping. And when... I have an opportunity. I want to get more training on that because I kind of foresee that this might be the next thing that's brought to the field in EMS for the 911 users, not just in critical care. It's remarkable that um, people can talk and breathe, you know, with that, with that humidified air being <laughs> jolted up their nose. Because I don't know about Remember, you. But we used to have humidifiers. They pulled them all off the rigs. Um, that We all started with Venturi um humidifiers that you would stick on to everybody with oxygen. Mm -hmm. well, and then they turned out that they should be thrown away after every patient and because they weren't, they were breeding grounds for bacteria. So they ripped them off all the ambulances. But uh, yeah, humidification used to be the standard, not to the level of sophistication that the units have now. And then but it's interesting that it came back. And then just to add to the conversation, because not, it's not every day that I get to talk to someone who's been doing this as long as me. I've been around since demand valves. I definitely have used demand valves with patients, and I love them. I think they're wonderful. I just uh, can. I just also totally understand how you could hurt someone with them, you know. And, and for those who don't know, a demand valve is basically you push a button, and that button delivers high flow oxygen. And so instead of having to squeeze an AMBU bag or a BVM, you would just push a button. And the problem is that you could force deliver too much air and blow a lung. But um, these are all things that make medicine exciting because this is a science. This is like growing and, and developing. And for those of you who are just starting in EMS, get ready because uh, yeah. when I retire, I want you to be able to do everything, including regrow organs in the back of the ambulance. You know, right now, I would just love for us to get some basic lab work. But, uh, but yeah, I have high hopes. How about you? Yeah. I also used to use uh, – 
positive pressure in the, in the field. Actually, when I started, um, I was the only paramedic on my shift and they started the program the day they hired me to take the third shift. And um, the, the fire truck still had Minutemen uh, oxygen systems on there, which basically was just, they turn the oxygen on, strap it to their head. And that was all anybody did. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. It was just basically a high flow that somebody hoped might breathe for them, but the training was minimal and the units were kind of crazy. Um, but uh yeah, I used to use demand valves. It was like a game changer for trying to ventilate people. But then um, this thing started to come out. Don't use my kids. And then the new stuff we have now in hyperventilation and um, what it does to the patients, uh, it, it lends one pause because uh, respiration is, is much more complicated than we used to think it was. It's not simply breathing, but it's um, breathing in a manner that allows you to make the exchanges that have to take place without causing harm. It's, um, that's where standards are probably very important in, in that realm. I agree. And, you know, it's also preventing getting, we want to prevent getting all the air in the belly, right? Because those demand valves can just pump somebody's belly full and then you got a vomit mess next. That's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, some, if you were the medic coming in after somebody else was running a, a, a positive pressure unit full blast, you've usually got everything they ate for the last 48 hours as soon as you tried to get the tube in. Mm-hmm. Yep, they filled them yeah. up. Well, well, talking to you has been great, and I know that um, this is something that we should definitely do again. Thanks for being on the show, and I, I appreciate all the work that you do to prepare these our articles for us. And like I said, I'll be buying the, um, definitely the article review, um, book and all your stuff. I'm going to post down below so that folks can, uh, take a look at your website and your books. Yeah, it's simple. IPHMI.com. So have a look and, uh, I appreciate you bringing me on Brian. This has been great. And, uh, I'm hoping, uh, we're just getting started. Heck yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you for being here. I want to also invite you to check out my latest book I co-authored with Four Arrows, who has two doctorates and is an expert on indigenous scholarship and hypnosis. So I just want to invite you to check it out because we introduce a method for communicating with patients on the scene of an emergency that takes advantage of some of the properties found in hypnosis. This book works to change the way we approach and interact with any kind of emergency patient in acute distress because it's going to help you be a better practitioner and use communication as a healing tool. Right now, there's just not a lot of training in how to talk to your patient. And if you've been stuck with a patient for any period of time and and you need to have a conversation, it's awesome to be able to have a healing conversation. This book is called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for Life-Saving and Therapeutic Outcomes. You can follow the link below to find it, or you can find it literally almost anywhere you type in the name or my name. I had a friend that mailed me a book and wanted an autograph. Don't mail me a bunch of books. Just let me know that you want an autograph for the book, and I'll be happy to send you over a sticker. I have some stickers made that are pretty awesome that I'll send you that you could put in the cover. The other thing before we close that I want to share is that I'm doing a research project related to first responders who live in the United States. And I could really use your help if you don't mind being interviewed over a video call. So go to my website, fill out the form that's at professorbram.com, professorbram.com. And thank you again for listening. I look forward to sharing more insights with you in this next episode. If you enjoy EMS research, please tell your friends, like, share, and subscribe to help others get the message. And then stay tuned for the credits at the end so you can see the research articles that we talked about in today's episode.